0: I think something's happened to marriage over the last uh, couple of generations. My uh, parents got married in the years immediately after the war. And admittedly, those, those years were uh, uh, years of enforced austerity. But still, the wedding photographs indicate a, a, a modesty in those days, which goes beyond, I think, just the uh, financial limitations. My, my mother wore a very simple um, uh, cream suit that she wore for many years afterwards. In fact, I think I can remember it myself as a small child. My, my father actually is notorious for having only for his wedding day, uh, uh, his wedding day having the only day when he ever bought a suit. It's the only suit he's ever owned. And mark this, middle-aged man, he still could fit into that same suit when I got married. We call it his Al Capone suit actually because of uh, uh, you can imagine the style and it was very amusing to see how it went in and out of fashion over the years and um, uh, you simply were either lucky or unlucky if there was a family occasion when he had to wear the suit. My parents' reception, as, as far as I remember, was um, uh, in an upstairs room, I think they told me, of a pub. There was about 25 people there. But actually my parents' marriage has lasted now for more than 50 years. And it's actually been a rock, a rock of stability for uh, uh, four children... Uh, so far nine grandchildren and in many ways my parents have become the focal point of a, a rambling extended uh, family which uh, stretches over the whole world and on the occasions when we get together usually numbers more than 50 By the time Judy and I got married, marriages were starting to be a very different thing. Uh, It was obligatory for the guest list to be well over 100 and the average wedding costs were climbing and continue to rise. It's not rare today, you know, for someone to spend a year's wages on a wedding. And it seems to me... uh, that the trends continue. Posh and Bex and now Katie and Peter are leading the way in extravagance. At the same time as marriages have got more extravagant though, their duration has got shorter. Down to ten years, the average length of a marriage in Britain now. Some suggest that actually the more we spend on our wedding the less likely it is to last. Indeed, um, uh, one WAG has suggested if you want to really guarantee that your marriage will fail, you need to make sure that it's nationally televised, that it's either in Westminster Abbey or St Paul's Cathedral and you are married by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Ask the Windsors, they'll tell you. Now, for many, many people in our, in our nation... Actually, for the same people often as have the fairy tale wedding. Their marriage is nasty, brutish and short. And at the same time, it seems, in people's minds, the significance of marriage has reached almost mythical proportions. I wonder whether that's why our generation so dislikes what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul has been uh, reviled by many, many people as a misogynist, sex-hating, grumpy old bachelor who can hardly find a good thing to say about marriage. The um, uh, feminist author Faye Weldon actually was famously asked to write an introduction for um, the pocket canon Bibles on uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians and she went to read these letters to the Corinthians, expecting to find what, uh, uh, what she described as a pestilent fellow who is hard to like. When she actually read 1 Corinthians, it actually began a process in her, which finally led to her conversion. She tells crucially how she got to chapter 7, And she realised that Paul's attitudes to marriage were actually deeply civilised. And she started to think again. So this morning, I want us to see what Faye Weldon saw. But in order to do that... We are going to have to abandon our fairy tale ideas. We're going to have to throw away half the DVDs that there are on our shelves, leave the telly switched off most nights of the week, and actually try to look at some real wisdom about sex and marriage. Because what um, Paul says is at the same time deeply wise but also deeply countercultural. Actually, for the next few weeks, up to Christmas, um, we're going to be looking at what the Apostle Paul says about sex and marriage and singleness in one Corinthians seven. And in many ways, I can just only just start to orient you, and we'll come back to some of these themes in uh, in, in subsequent weeks. Um, so, by way of orientation then, we need to notice a first thing. A something that Bridget Jones, Miss Elizabeth Bennet and James Bond would recoil at in horror. Sex and marriage, says the Apostle Paul, are not the only thing. Now, for matters that you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry says the Apostle. Last week, you remember, we saw the Apostle Paul dealing with the habit of some men in the, in the church to use prostitutes and we saw that he begins his argument with a very controversial statement. Everything is permissible to me, he said, and we, we deliberated then whether he was just quoting um, something the Corinthians uh, had said without uh, uh, accepting it himself or whether it did represent his views and we concluded that he was, um, he was quoting a, a slight misrepresentation of something that he had actually said to them. And here, it seems, he's, he's doing the same again. He has actually said, it is good for a man not to marry to them. Indeed, literally, uh, uh, um, it is good for a man, um, says the original, not to touch a woman. I mean, just to actually in this chapter, in verse 7 again, he inf- affirms his personal view that uh, singleness is good. I wish that all men were as I am, he says. Actually, it's not quite clear what exactly Paul's marital status was at this time. Paul, He clearly is um, um, functioning as an unmarried man when he writes this letter. But um, before he was converted, Paul was already a Pharisee of relatively mature years. And Pharisees more or less insisted that men should be uh, married when they reached adulthood. So it does seem actually likely, from Paul's background, that um, he had been married. Most likely he was a widower, just possibly Some down through the ages have suggested that he perhaps had a wife who had deserted him, perhaps when he got converted. Whatever the details, we can be confident. Um, When he writes to the Corinthians, he's a single man. But quite probably he knew personally, from personal experience, what it was to be married. If Paul thinks... um, it's good, then, for a person not to marry. Is that from painful experience? Is he, da- is he disparaging marriage? Now, Richard's already pointed out to us, that cannot be the case. Someone who writes those words in, in Ephesians chapter 5 cannot be someone who thinks marriage is uh, 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 a bit of a... Um, uh, a second class thing. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Christ is absolutely committed to his church, says uh, the Apostle, and likewise you husbands be absolutely committed in that, in that joyful wonderful way to your wives. Marriage is no second-class thing to the Apostle. Just in uh, in chapter 6, we saw last week, he uh, tells uh, people not to have sex with prostitutes, but not because sex is dirty. On the contrary, because As sex is the most wonderful, precious thing which binds a man and a woman together at a deep level. The two will become one flesh, he says. So don't waste sex on prostitutes, he's saying. It's too precious. The only thing, he says, which surpasses sex and marriage is knowing God and loving Christ. If you're a Christian here this morning, that is what you already have, single or married. You are the recipient of the the eternal, faithful, all-giving love of Christ. Your heart does not need to wither for the love of a good man or a good woman. It can be nourished every day, every week, every month, every year. It can grow and thrive and find contentment. Because you are the recipient of a love far deeper than any human being can ever give you. That's what Paul's saying. That's why sex and marriage is not the only thing. Bridget Jones is only going to find what she is searching for if she finds the right man. James Bond has nothing to sublimate his sexual urges into, perhaps apart from killing the next baddie. So he he begs every girl that, that, that he comes across and lives underneath, actually. So we learn in the recent Bond films with a sense of loss of his first love. Never finding real contentment. Christians have something better. So for some people, it might actually be good not to marry. How do we decide that? Well, apart from whether the right person happens to come along, this is where modern people really hate the Apostles. Verse 2, since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Or verse 7, I wish that all men were as I am, that each has his own uh, gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Verse 9, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. It's the only criterion, Paul, whether you can control yourself sexually. Is he sort of somewhat sneering and saying, well, there are some people who are so pathetic they cannot control themselves and uh, perhaps they should marry. But uh, those who are really great spiritually, they should uh, rise above such things. No, the Apostle Paul is not saying that. He's not saying that because of what he said in verse 7. Did you notice? Each man has his own gift from God One has this gift, another has that gift. The the word gift is charisma. It is the same word for spiritual gifts elsewhere. Wonderful, good thing. And people are either gifted to be able to sublimate their sexual urges into other creative activities so that they they can find contentment in a single life or they need to be gifted with the ability to surrender their own self-determination to another person, ultimately perhaps to a whole family. Both of those are gifts of God. Paul's saying, actually, find your gift. Both of them take a lot of work to work out successfully. Both of them can cause difficulty and and frustration. Find your gift. Now of course if if sex and uh, marital happiness is your highest ideal, you will not be able to assess that. You will, will not be able to, to think with uh, uh, a level of balance about what is the right thing for you. We need first of all to understand The most important thing, if we're Christians here this morning, the most important thing that could ever happen to us in our lives has already happened to us. And God will give us the grace, will give us his gifts to pursue either a single or a married life. Because he loves us. Because he's committed himself to us. He's not going to let us go. Once we've got that perspective in our minds, then uh, perhaps we can look again at verse 9. If they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I I want you to think of that, that phrase, to burn with passion, in the broadest possible sense. I mean, for men... To, to be absolutely honest, it is often primarily a simple drive for coition. For women it, it is often a, um, a, a long term, constant, undiminishing sense of need, for a partner at a much deeper and broader level from that uh, the, the, than the, than, than the man 's rather more simplistic drives, and both of those may well be signs that we have the gift of marriage, not the gift of singleness. It's not a, a second-rate way of assessing how we should live. Rather, it seems a wise way of assessing how we should see our future. Now, I know that raises lots of questions, and many of those questions, like what do I do if I'm single and don't feel I've got the gift of singleness and so on, we're going to look at in subsequent weeks. Today, I just want to orient you If sex and marriage really is the most important thing in your life, then you've missed what Paul says. You've missed the glory of what it means to be a believer. Sex and marriage are not the only thing, says the Apostle. And here's some words then that he gives Primarily to married couples. Another set of very countercultural words, where he's saying effectively, My needs are not the only thing. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. In one sense, Paul is millennia ahead of his time. A woman's sexual needs, he says, are placed absolutely on a par with a man's. see that? Now, Corinthian society more or less revolved around the use and abuse of uh, women. Roman law had gone a long way to uh, giving certain women at least equal rights, but frankly that didn't pertain to the bedroom. Even Paul's Old Testament didn't explicitly put it in this clear, symmetrical way. Right up to the 19th century, the view expressed by the Victorian um, gynaecologist William Acton held sway. He wrote, a modest woman seldom desires any sexual gratification for herself. She submits to her husband only to please him, and but for the desire of maternity would far rather be relieved of his attentions. It's only in the 20th century, frankly, that the world caught up with what the Apostle Paul had said nearly 2,000 years ago. But note, Paul is also deeply countercultural for the 21st century. Husbands and wives, note carefully the bedroom is not where my sexual needs are fulfilled alone. It is where I discover fulfilment through satisfying the the needs of my partner. Did you see that this one, The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. I've noticed that virtually all secular books about marriage and sex assume that marriage is about self-gratification. Wives, this is how to treat your husbands to get what you want, it says. Husbands, this is how to treat your wife so that she will be sexually uh, receptive to you. Often, actually, they're giving pretty good advice, but underneath it is a terribly bleak assumption. Just to caricature it for a moment, they assume that in marriage we are entirely on our own, learning to manipulate that, uh, our partner so that we get what we need. But actually really never making any deep connection with them. They are just the foil for my gratification. Read modern books on sex and marriage and I think you will see that again and again and again. And Paul is opposed to that bleak idea of marriage. He says each partner actually surrenders themselves, gives up their autonomy, gives themselves to the other for the other's pleasure. And actually in so doing, finds a deeper, more satisfying pleasure. Shared between the two now. Not on my own. Shared between the two. As each satisfies the other's needs. Husbands, most of us are not very good at that, are we? Most of us, sadly, have what, what used to be called the martini attitude to sex. You know, any time, any place, anywhere. We're, we're slow to learn that our wives' sexual needs don't start and end in the brief moment between climbing into bed and falling asleep. Why not let foreplay play begin at breakfast? Or days before? Why not cultivate, actually, a habit of affection and love and delight for which sex is just the icing on the cake? That's what most wives are longing for, you know. And wives, I do know that most men are boringly unromantic. I get told it myself uh, with rather too much frequency. I do know that the um, most foreplay that you um, uh, often get is how about it then after uh, a long day's work. But perhaps, wives, you do need to understand a little bit that men are wired a bit differently. Perhaps not all sex has to be in the context of long, slow-burning day of romance. I wonder, do you know what he likes? I wonder, could you learn to like it too? Each partner learning what the other needs and, and building into their relationship the commitment to give it, give it and give it and give it and give it. Neither partner will demand in a true Christian marriage. Neither partner will use sex as a weapon. Both will be committed to asking and understanding. And then in a sacrificial way, giving what the other person needs. Marriage is massively important, says Paul. We need to understand it's not about my needs. It's about our needs. And then another fascinating way in which Paul wants to orient these uh, Christians as they think about uh, issues of marriage and singleness. Spiritual matters, he says, are not the only thing. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come again, so that Satan, come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You see, it seems that, there, that in Corinth, along uh, that, that there was also a fairy tale idealism in another direction, floating around. The idea that uh, uh, married couples perhaps might live celibate lives for the sake of the gospel. Rise above their need for sex so that they could devote themselves entirely to Jesus and entirely to prayer. And Paul says that's utter utter poppycock. Don't waste your time with that. Actually, at this point, just for a moment, I do have a message for married couples given me to, uh, uh, to me by Amy Ski that she asked me to pass on. She can't be here because she's um, in a rather full crash. Um, she says, please, young married couples, stop it. There's enough children in the crash now to keep us going for ages. But Paul does not say that. That's what I want you to see. The apostle does not say that. He says, okay, sometimes for uh, spiritual reasons, there there may be good reasons not to to, um, suspend sex. Only for the best spiritual reasons though, for prayer. And then only temporarily, not a lifetime of it, but just there just for moments, perhaps. Now, I have to say, I don't see a lot of that super-spiritual uh, um, uh, attitude to sex um, uh, today. I would note though that perhaps working couples can make themselves so busy at work that they're too tired for sex. Well, if Paul says that not even prayer, not even the best possible things should take you away from enjoying your sexual relationship together, work is a pretty poor excuse, isn't it? There's something wrong if that's so high in our priorities, our marriage is neglected. I would also point out, though perhaps there are some married couples here who are over-devoted to spiritual issues, that there are also, I suspect, married couples who wouldn't for a moment even temporarily suspend their priority of their marriage Christ. Paul does say that sometimes that would happen, even if only for a period, and even if only as a concession, not as a command. Verse 6 So I won't give it as a command. His main thrust is don't be, so, don't be ridiculously spiritual. I see amongst some singles, in particular, this 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 idea that if I was really spiritual, then I wouldn't get married. I'd devote myself to 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 a single life. And if, frankly, when you look at your gifts, you know that you would be better married. Don't think that that is somehow second class. Don't think that that is that is less spiritual. It is our spiritual duty to live the life God has called us to. If it's to get married, get married. If it's to, to uh, honour our partner in marriage, do that. And do not think that something else is better than a healthy intimate, married life. If I look at the marriages then of 50, 60, 100 years ago, I have to say, I think they got something right. That we've lost I have to say that our modern fairy tale idea of marriage is pathetic and completely damaging. And our reaction to Paul's, our negative reaction to Paul's rather down to earth, pretty straightforward exposition about sex and marriage indicates that actually that fairy tale idea is more deeply rooted in us than we may like to think. Marriage has always been a massively important thing for human beings. But we've elevated it, it seems to me, to the status of idolatry sometimes. And of course then real marriage crashes around our ears. because it never could live up to the ideals. In the old days people understood that marriage is about patient, quiet, committed, giving to another person. And sometimes accepting a certain amount of loss personally as marriages go through their seasons. And perhaps one is giving more sometimes and another is giving more at other times. But there is that core commitment to give to the other person which binds them together. I find it sickening when I read account after account of divorce where the person is effectively saying they weren't meeting my needs. That is so subhuman as well as sub Christian. My needs are not the only thing. If I put them central, we will destroy our marriages. And there is a silliness about us sometimes, a silly idealism that can't see. That actually, to glorify God, to follow God, is for most of us, a steady commitment to a partnership. Not allowing work, or even prayer or church, to eclipse that central commitment in our lives. To be together. I wonder how many marriages in this room will still be thriving in 30, 40, 50 years time. How many marriages, like my parents, who actually are not actively practising Christians. How many marriages will be the centre point of a wide warm, extended family. Because right at the heart there, with all its difficulties and dysfunction, right at the heart is a Christian understanding of what it means to be together. Jesus set the example, didn't he? He gave himself completely on the cross for us. And we are to image that by giving ourselves completely. First to him and then in imitation of him to one another.